Today we take a break from the story of David and we read the epistle from the lectionary, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. It is necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, I am strong. May the Lord bless the reading of this living word. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. America, America, God shed His grace on thee. On this day when we celebrate our strengths and our triumphs as a nation, we also must remember that we are saved and will only be saved by grace. This is the message that we overhear this morning in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. As was his typical pattern, Paul has left the church he started in Corinth to, care, to the care of local leaders. And while he is teaching and preaching elsewhere, some new teachers have come to try to take over the church. They boast in their superior Jewish heritage. They boast of their success in ministry. And they boast to have had these visions in which God has taken them up into the heavens and spoken to them. They claim that all of, them gives, all of this gives them and not Paul the authority to lead the people. And so they don't know what to believe or whom to believe. So Paul begins by saying, it is necessary to boast. Nothing is gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. 
He's basically saying, I don't need to prop myself up or inflate my own ego like you do. I don't need to try to be strong by talking about my visions, but I've had visions too. His vision of the risen Christ on that Damascus road literally turned his life around. Paul, the bloodthirsty persecutor of the church, became one who felt it a joy to suffer with Christ. And because the visions continue, Paul became the most prolific teacher and preacher and writer in all Christianity. The vision sustained him in his churches through powerful words that have stood the test of these 2,000 years of time, even to this very moment. And as was common in the rhetoric of the time, Paul speaks of these visions, he speaks of himself in the third person. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And his audience thinks that, gosh, Paul's really going to crush his opponents here. And just when you think Paul is going to tell us something to impress us, he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I was caught up in the paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. They say knowledge is power, but Paul refuses to claim even that power which he might rightly take. Did you hear Paul's wordplay? I know. I do not know. God knows. I know. I do not know. God knows. Paul knew that he'd been caught up in the presence of the Almighty God, but he also knew that his experience was not something that he could comprehend, much less control or manipulate for his own gain. His vision could not give him superior knowledge or power when it came to his relationship with God or with the Corinthians. And though he could try to wow his listeners by boasting to them, he tells them, I heard things that can't be told. Maybe there were things that God told him not to share. Or maybe there were things that were just so wonderful that he knew his human words would distort God's unspeakable, capital T, truth. So he kept his mouth shut. On my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen or heard from me. Paul may have had the right to boast about his exceptional vision, but he doesn't want anybody to think better of him because of it. This is, as Pastor Jennifer said, incomprehensible to us. We spend our whole lives saying and doing whatever it is that we desperately hope might make other people think better of us. Just look at our highly curated Facebook or Instagram pages. Just think about the personas and the masks that we wear to cover up our weakness and our messiness. Paul refuses to divert the people's attention to these visions that would make them revere him more than he thinks they ought. He points them instead to the beauty and brokenness of his messy human life among them, just as it is. But Paul goes even further than that. He says, I boast in my weaknesses. He points out his weaknesses for others to see. 
Because as embarrassing and as humiliating as it might have been for others to see his flaws so nakedly, he knows that he knows that that is only there that they will see God's power at work. Because it is only there that God's power could not be confused for what they otherwise might believe was Paul's power. In fact, Paul has learned to see his weaknesses, his imperfections, that human messiness that we all desperately try to overcome and to fix and hide as this kind of painful gift that keeps him humble, that allows him to remember that God is God and that He is not. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. He repeats that phrase twice too. This word that's translated as thorn can simply mean a thorn or a briar, something that gets caught in our clothing or gets stuck in our skin that's irritating and that it hurts but is not life-threatening or debilitating. But it could also be a deadly sharpened stake stuck in the ground by an enemy so that the enemy soldiers would run into it. Or it could be a spear that was used to torture enemy combatants after they were captured. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. Scholars and ordinary people have been thinking and debating about that for centuries, for millennia. It could be anything from a physical deformity to a chronic injury or illness or something like epilepsy or depression. But I think it's actually better that Paul doesn't tell us. By not naming it, he doesn't let it become the focus. He doesn't let it take more energy than it deserves. Paul doesn't let himself become a victim. But Paul's ambiguity also allows us to say, me too. We all have thorns, don't we? Paul says it was given to him with the implication in the Greek that it was given to him from God. It was something that he was born with or something that came along the way. It's now just a part of who he is. But Paul also calls it a messenger of Satan. Hasetan in the Hebrew of Judaism, which just means the accuser. What God gave Paul, this malady that inflicts hurt and causes struggle, is the battleground in which Paul meets Hasetan, Satan, the accuser. The thorn itself is not evil, but Satan wants to use the pain. He wants to use the struggle to tempt Paul to do evil. And the same is true with us. Paul asked God over and over again for this thorn to be pulled out, for the torture to stop. But the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. For power, my power, is made perfect in weakness. And maybe that was the answer to Paul's unanswered prayer. Not that Paul's weaknesses be fixed or taken away, but that God would show up in and through and in spite of them. I sometimes wonder if it's only in our weakness that God can work at all. It's not that I don't believe that God can't work in our strengths, but I think that the things that we see and that others see as strengths can get in the way. 
They can sabotage us. They can prevent us from surrendering to God. They can prevent us from recognizing God's strength in our lives. I know this well because I'm a, I'm a one on the Enneagram, which is a perfectionist. The Enneagram is this ancient spiritual tool with nine different types to try to characterize our, our ways of being and thinking and speaking to each other in the world. These numbered types are spectrums in which our greatest strengths, the things that helped us survive childhood and succeed in life, the things that make other people like us, at least on the surface, are also our greatest downfall. To use Paul's language, the dark side of our types are these thorns that are at best always there poking and prodding, and at worst, making us feel like our souls are attacked and tortured. And because hurt people hurt other people, our thorns can poke and attack and torture others too, if we're not careful, without us even noticing. As a one, I want to do everything right or perfect. I know that's impossible. Of course it is. But yet, each and every moment, I live with a voice in my head that tells me I can perfect myself and the world and relentlessly points out every single imperfection. Do you have somebody in your house who, when the dishwasher is already loaded and is ready to go, has to go in and rearrange everything and make sure it's just right? Then you might live with a one. Do you have someone in your house who compulsively cleans? who has to get rid of all the clutter if someone's coming over and puts it in the closet or another room or on his wife's bed because it's really her clutter. Even if there's not somebody going, coming over, he just can't help it. Uh, you may live with the one. And uh, Jenny, I'm sorry. What's not so funny about this is that I believe this lie that the only way that I can accept and love myself and the only way that others could accept or love me is to be perfect, or at least to seem perfect. A few years ago, before coming to West Main, I was preaching on a Sunday morning, and I was really coming up to the last minute trying to finish my sermon. And I was running out of time, and I didn't have an ending. And so I kept writing, and I kept writing, and I kept writing. And finally, I had to give up and just get dressed and get in the car and go to church. And I told myself, I'll improvise. I'll trust the Holy Spirit. And I prayed for God to speak through me, but I was so afraid. It was excruciating going up into that pulpit, knowing that I was going to finish the sermon with words not from my immaculate manuscript, but, but off the cuff, from the heart. The ending was so messy, and I don't remember what I said, but I stumbled around until I finally got to an amen and walked out. And I wanted to get through that handshaking as fast as I can and just escape. As Jennifer said, just hide. I stood in the narthex berating myself on the inside and had a smile plastered on my face and I was exchanging pleasantries until I was interrupted from my inner dialogue with a bear hug from this man that had never hugged me before and he had tears in his eyes and he said, that was the best sermon you've ever preached God used you to say exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you. I was dumbfounded. 
without being able to rely on the illusion of my perfection, it was obvious that God was at work, even through that stumbling mess that I somehow got through. But all of a sudden, the voice in my head interrupted me and said, I don't care if God used it. I wanted it to be perfect. In that moment, I realized that I was more interested in being praised for my strength than praising God's strength. I realized how much more I wanted to boast in my power than to rely on God's power. I realized just how much I was letting myself listen to the voice of Hasetan, the accuser, and not just letting myself listen, but preferring that voice, his voice, to trusting God's voice. I realized how much I would actually prefer to save myself, if that would even be possible, than to be saved by grace. That's what Satan can do with a thorn. But you know what? God can work with that too. I still struggle with that thorn in my flesh every single day. And everything I think and overthink and everything I do and uh, regret and everything I say as Jesus' disciple, as Jenny's husband, as Judah's dad, as your pastor, I'm constantly tempted to believe that the success or failure of whatever it is that I'm doing, whatever relationship that I'm in, is mine. I'm tempted to believe that the success or failure of my spiritual life or the church is all up to me. But when the inevitable disappointments and failures come, I am dumbfounded again and again that God works with that. And not only works with that, but does more than I ever imagined was possible. And makes it abundantly clear to me that God is God and I am not. I think that's why Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest and spiritual teacher, says that he prays for one good humiliation every single day. So that he will be painfully confronted with his weakness and therefore able to see the strength that is only God's. Maybe one day I will be strong enough or perhaps weak enough to pray that prayer too. I share this thorn in my flesh not so that you can put me on a pedestal, but as a way of, of trying to take myself off of it. Because I want to be like Paul, pointing not to my superior knowledge or any strength that I have, but instead to what you can see and hear God doing in my imperfection. Because I think we can all be that way. I pray that you will have the courage to look at the weakness of your own life, to see your own thorn. I pray that we would have the courage to face the thorns that we have as a nation, as a family, as a church. I pray that we would have the courage to pray as Reinhold Niebuhr prayed, to change what we can change and to have the serenity to accept the things that we can't change. And that word acceptance is key because like Paul, we might pray over and over and over again for the thorn to be taken. But often instead of letting go and giving it into God's hands, we rage against it, trying to pull it out with all our might. And in doing so, we focus on the thorn 
instead of the grace that God gives us in spite of it and even because of it. And that only causes us more pain and more grief. Because in our unwillingness to let God be God, we allow ourselves to listen to Hasetan. We begin to think of ourselves as the victim. We begin to victimize others. But if we can stop fighting the thorn, if we can stop trying to fix or save ourselves, then we might stop fighting and trying to fix and save each other. And in our surrender, in our acceptance of the thorn, that part of who we are that we are tempted to hate, we might find the unconditional love of God whose power is shown most fully in our weakness and whose grace is always sufficient for us. A few weeks ago, I was really beating myself up over a mistake that I had made. I was really feeling down having a hard time believing many of the things that I'm saying to you. And I stumbled upon this quote from Carl Jung. In my case, Pilgrim's progress consisted in my having to climb down a thousand ladders until I could reach out my hand in friendship to the little clod of dirt that I am. This morning, I pray that you would dare to climb a little further down those ladders, even if it's just one rung today, and reach a little further down to that little clod of earth that you are. It will kill your pride. It will hurt your ego. But Jesus says you have to lose what you think is your life to gain what truly is life. Because when you reach down to accept and even love your weakness, you're actually reaching up to the God who wants to be strong for you. And when you reach down to accept and even love your weakness, you will find the courage to reach out to others without caring anymore how weak you think you look because you believe God's power is better than your own. So as the old hymn says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. In a moment, we will sing our hymn, Come Thou Fount.